Grab that door, Greg. Oh, got it. Okay, we're in Esther chapter 4 tonight, and verses 1 through 12, intercession made to, made to Esther. And uh, as we get started here, uh, note the theme here is God's providential care for his people. I, it's kind of interesting. In, in the book, God's name is not mentioned, and yet the fingerprints of God are all over this story. And um, in terms of the providential workings of God, uh, <laughs> there may be no stronger uh, book in terms of the theme of providence than the book of Esther. It is certainly a, a major theme. Well, we, work, we have worked our way down to chapter 4, and uh, actually chapters 4 through 7 kind of have the same theme, Esther's courage, Haman's plot backfires. Esther is a story about God's providence and his faithfulness. And it's kind of interesting because nothing can really thwart the faithfulness of God. Uh, you have a people in Persia that are not really where they ought to be. The command has gone forth for them to go back home. I mean, that's the promised land. That's where Jews belong is in the promised land. So here they are kind of getting comfy out of the land in the land of Persia. Most, very few of them, relatively speaking, had gone back. Most of them are, are dwelling in Persia kind of in a, the land of compromise in, in that sense. And so it's a, really a, a story about God's faithfulness in spite of a people that are not really where they should be. It's a story about good versus evil, about God versus Satan, about God's people versus Satan's people. And in the end, the people of God triumph purely because of God's power and his grace. Really, we're all trophies of grace. At the end of the day, it's not like we help push ourselves over the line. Right? It's all God's doing. All the glory goes to God. I know that totally. I'm willing to die on that hill. All the glory goes to God. None of it goes to us. Well, as the book of Esther develops, we see this is a story about hostility between a man named Haman and a man named Mordecai. And yet it's not merely a personal feud. It goes deeper, I think, than that. Uh, Haman in, represents the ancient people called the Amalekites, who were the proverbial enemies of God's people, the Jews. And Mordecai represents the Jews. And behind all this is God representing the Jews and Satan representing the Amalekites. So we've got a lot of different levels uh, of what's happening here. In the story, Haman had been promoted to the second highest position in the Persian kingdom, right under the king. And in that position, the king had really, you know, he'd really kissed up to the king, evidently. And the king really wanted to honor this Haman and said everybody should bow before Haman. Well, <clears throat> there is a problem. There is one man named Mordecai who would not bow before Haman. And it so happened that he is a Jew. And in that context, he lets it out. The information gets out that's been so guarded up to this point. But then he lets it slip. He lets it out to the fellow servants of the king. That the reason he's not bowing is because he's a Jew. Oh, that was the wrong thing to say, uh, humanly speaking. Uh, this infuriated Haman. And so he came up with a plot, not only to kill Mordecai, but also to kill the whole of the Jewish population, to kill not only Mordecai, but all of his people. Well, Haman, in a crafty way, got the king to sign a decree 
which called for the annihilation of all the Jews on a certain day, which was then signed into law by the king. This decree was then published throughout the entire realm of the, of the kingdom. Well, that brings us to where we are in the story here in Esther chapter 4. And we pick it up, Esther 4 verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, uh, the decree that had been signed for, um, calling for the annihilation of the Jews, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So when he learned of Haman's, uh, Mordecai learned of Haman's murderous scheme, now made official law, which could not be changed, by the way. The law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed. Well, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a way of expressing extreme grief in the ancient Near East. Sometimes it also expressed uh, brokenness, uh, uh, the brokenness of deep repentance, but it certainly expressed brokenness and grief. And that's the context here. You know, sackcloth uh, even looks miserable to wear. I, I've never worn sackcloth. Have you had sackcloth on? I mean, this just, I mean, this looks drab. It looks, it looks miserable, which is the idea, right? You put on sackcloth, you're, you're, you're portraying, I'm in misery. I'm in misery. I'm broken. And that's what he was wearing. Sackcloth was very rough material, very uncomfortable wear, made out of goat skins or, or camel hide. And again, the wearing of it signified mourning and brokenness. Well, Mordecai went out into the streets of the city, very publicly, and cried out with a bitter cry. He must have been quite a miserable sight to behold. He had, remember, he had told his peers that he was a Jew. We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 4. That's what got back to Haman. That's what made him so mad. Is Not only is he not bowing, he's not bowing because he's a Jew. That was the, that was the issue. And now he is on public record by his actions, that this murderous decree ripped at his heart and he was broken over it. I mean, he wasn't ashamed to to show it. He's out in the streets. When it says he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, this literally means he cried with a a great cry. In the Old Testament, this language described a loud howl, either over personal or national tragedy. That's the idea here. Now, many commentators think that in Mordecai's mind, what aggravated his grief, very probably, very possibly at this time, was that he realized that in his revealing that he was a Jew, this brought the wrath of Haman down on his people. That would make sense. That's what has happened here. So when he realized that he was in effect kind of the the cause behind this, you can imagine uh, the pressure he felt. Undoubtedly, he felt like he was personally responsible on some level for what was happening. And this this is a heavy weight on the soul of a person. You realize it is estimated there were about 10 million Jews living in the Persian Empire at this time. So Mordecai... Uh, was feeling responsible for the lives of 10 million Jews, fellow Jews at this point. And that is a heavy, heavy burden to bear. Well, verse 2 says, He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. 
There was strict court etiquette that allowed no one wearing sackcloth to enter the king's quarters. You see, the king didn't want sour, dour demeanor hanging around his court. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting. A- after a while here, uh, of course, Ahasuerus is murdered and uh, his son uh, comes on the scene uh, named Artaxerxes. And uh, you remember who was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes? It was a man by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah heard what was going on in Jerusalem. And remember what, what happened to him? Uh, he, his, uh, his countenance was affected. He couldn't help but be sad. And we read about this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King, King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him. Uh, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. <clears throat> you know, just, you just don't do this. I mean, you have to put on a cheery face in the front of the king. That's what he wants. <laughs> he doesn't want sad here. Verse 2, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you're not sick. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. <clears throat> so I became dreadfully afraid. That tells you a little bit about this. You just, there was a certain demeanor that's uh, expected in the presence of the king. King wanted only happy countenances in his presence. Certainly no sackcloth and ashes were allowed for sure. And the king got uh, what he wanted generally, right? Verse 3, and in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, With fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So everywhere this decree was broadcast, and you remember there's 127 provinces in this kingdom. It was a massive uh, kingdom. And everywhere it went, uh, the Jews' response was the same as Mordecai's. Mourning, weeping, wailing, fasting with sackcloth and ashes. They were a broken people. This was an ethnic disaster of dire proportions. I mean, the very survival of the people is at stake here. Again, even though God is not mentioned in the book, and neither is prayer, even so, regularly in the Old Testament, fasting was accompanied with prayer, very consistently. And so, very possibly, and probably implied here, is that uh, prayer was going on here, too. Uh, along with the fasting. That seems to kind of be a, the veiled reference here when it talks about uh, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Fasting is mentioned here. It implies that they were probably appealing to God. I, I just uh, think they probably were in this situation. You know, when, you're, when your whole existence is at stake, you're probably, if you have any faith whatsoever, appealing uh, to the God of Israel. And so that seems to be implied here. Now, it's interesting. They were broken. Uh, You know, there is little brokenness over sin today by way of application. I speak by way of application here at this point. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary says, When is the last time you heard a sinner saved or lost cry out to God for mercy? At the beginning of my ministry, I saw a great many tears. I saw people cry out to God. He says, I do not see that today. Of course, McGee's been gone for a while already. It is interesting as you think about what the Bible says in terms of uh, worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow that, that leads to repentance. Uh, worldly sorrow is, is sorrowful because I feel sorry for me. 
Uh, Godly sorrow is broken over sin uh, because I'm offending God because of my sin. James says this, James 4, 8, and 9, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a spirit of true repentance, which is representative of uh, godly sorrow. An old preacher was informed that uh, during one of his services, someone had gotten the joy. Uh, But his question was this, did they ever get any sorrow? Uh, Proper repentant grief comes before joy, really. Uh, Popular Christianity today is all about the joy in a sense of uh, wanting to have a good time. And uh, for many, it's all about the fun, but there's little emphasis on repentance. And uh, joy is great. I mean, this is our heritage. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. But really, joy is to flow out of repentance. It's godly sorrow that produces true repentance, and out of that comes the joy of the Lord. And by the way, uh, there is consistently sorrow where evil reigns. People foolishly think that wicked leaders will make society better. It never does. And inevitably, it leads to sorrow. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bears rule, the people mourn. Wisdom principle from Proverbs 29. Well, with Haman as second in command and manipulating the king at this point, it was groaning time for the Jews in Persia. Verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take away his sackcloth, uh, take his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. Now realize in this days, uh, you couldn't text one another, right? Uh, There was limited communication, it would seem. And it would appear that Esther was pretty sequestered, uh, secluded in her queen's quarters, as it were. And was not really aware of what was happening, other than what was told to her by word of mouth, by her uh, assistants and so forth. And at this point, she had been informed of the spectacle of Mordecai wearing the sackcloth and and ashes. But uh, she didn't really know the why. And uh, she was aware that he was out in the public square making a spectacle of himself. But that's all she knew. So this report about Mordecai troubled Esther. What in the world is the problem here? Why is he so broken? What's going on here? So she sent garments to him so that he might change out of his sackcloth. You know, clean yourself up and let's cheer up. You know, whatever it is that's troubling you, it's going to be okay. However, he would not accept these garments. And in doing so, Mordecai was really communicating that this was not about a personal issue, but rather a national issue. This was not something he could just personally deal with and then move on. And so he remained in his sackcloth. He would not get dressed in these garments that she had sent over to him. Verse 5, Then Esther called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command uh, concerning Mordecai to learn 
what and why this was. What's going on here? Now we see in context here that both Esther and Mordecai trusted this eunuch. This eunuch's a major part of the story in a quiet sort of way. They trusted this eunuch named uh, Hanok, uh, uh, Hatak, Hatak, and various commentators have suggested that perhaps he was a Jew, but we really don't know that for sure. Uh, why was it they kind of trusted him? Well, we're not privy to that. We don't know. Uh, however, people generally do tend to get close to those that they work with. And with some of them, you kind of have a special bond and a relationship as you go along in life. And, and perhaps that was the case. Again, we don't really know. But for whatever reason, both Esther and Mordecai trusted this eunuch. Esther dispatched uh, Hatak to go and find out what was so troubling Mordecai that he was going about publicly in sackcloth and ashes and refused to be comforted, in effect. Now again, we know nothing about Hatak other than he was this trusted eunuch. Uh, he was used in a, as a courier in, <laughs> between Mordecai and, and Esther uh, for such a time as this. And Warren Wearsby makes this uh, observation application. So often in the work of the Lord, he uses obscure people to accomplish important tasks. What was the name of the young boy who gave Jesus his loaves and fishes? Who were the men who rescued Paul by luring him over the Damascus wall in a basket? It's a good thing they did, right? Or we wouldn't have a good part of the New Testament. Uh, what was the name of the little servant girl who told Naaman to go see the prophet? We don't know. But God used these people to accomplish his purposes. Here the eunuch Hatak is named, but we know nothing else about him. Isn't that interesting? We kind of know what he did. We do know what he did as far as relaying information back and forth here. But that's all we really know about him. It's like, well, what is his story? Was he a fellow Jude? Um, we don't know anything else about him, really. Verse 6 and 7. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. I mean, just bearing his soul here. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. This is a key part of the story. Mordecai filled in the details as to what had happened regarding his refusal to bow. Haman's national scheme to annihilate the Jews. And Haman's promise to the king to pay 10000 silver talents into the king's national treasury if he would but sign the decree, which he did. So Mordecai was privy to these behind-the-scenes details because of his high position in the government. Now we saw in verse 5 just a moment ago that God often uses people that have very little prominence. We might call nobodies. Like the eunuch Hatak to accomplish his purposes. But on the other hand, he often providentially places people like Mordecai into positions of prominence. So he does both to serve his ultimate purposes. Some people he uses in a position of no prominence. And some people are used in a position of prominence. And you know what? We don't get to decide where we're going to serve. God is sovereign over these details. 
You know, uh, he, but he does use some in uh, positions of prominence. Uh, Joseph was moved into that kind of a position in Egypt. Daniel served that way in Babylon. Nehemiah served that way under King Artaxerxes, as we've already mentioned. So we serve according to God's sovereign appointment. And we should accept where he places us for such a time as this. Most of us will serve in positions that are not real prominent in terms of uh, the world's thinking out here, for sure. But there's always a few exceptions. And it's good to remind ourselves that we're not self-made people and we're not self-placed people. God puts us right where we're at. I think about this in relationship to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, it says, God, But now God has set the members, each one of them, put your name in there, each one of them in the body just as he pleased. God places us where he wants us. This is God's sovereign work. And then I like this too, in light of our study tonight, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. You see your calling, brethren? Not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God mostly uses nobodies. So continue on, the, the weak, you know, the despised, and so forth. There was an English nobleman named uh, Lady Huntington who was saved during the time of the Wesley's ministry, during a particular street revival. And she said that she owned her salvation Uh, She owed her salvation to the letter M, to the letter M. If the text said not any wise, mighty, or noble, she would have been excluded. But as she pointed out, it says not many. It doesn't say not any, but not many. There are some. Mordecai was in a position of prominence. That's why he wanted to kind of hide the fact that he was a Jew, because that could threaten his position uh, potentially. But now it's all coming out. Verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. So here she is, the queen. She's kind of oblivious as to what the king's really been doing. Evidently, she didn't turn on the news that night or something. I don't know, but uh, she didn't know about it. And that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. Did you catch this? He is relaying through this eunuch to command Esther to go into the king and plead for the life of her people. Uh, He had a personal copy of the decree. He gave it to Hatak to show and explain to Esther. But also he sent along a command for her to go into the king and make supplication for her people. Meaning the Jewish people uh, who were being singled out for destruction. Mordecai at this point is putting it all on the line. You, You remember earlier he had charged Esther very strongly. Uh, Not to reveal her Jewish heritage, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 10. Then he himself revealed it to the king's servants that he was a Jew, as we saw in chapter 3, which is kind of interesting. He severely, in chapter 2, warns Esther not to tell. And then he lets it out in chapter 3. Kind of reminds me, years ago, somebody uh, it was a, a lady, and she told me, she says, I'm willing to tell you a secret if you promise not to tell anyone else. 
And I said, well, I heard one time, if somebody says that, they're asking you to do something they themselves cannot do. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's kind of interesting here. Mordecai was just, Esther, don't tell. And, And then he's the one that let it out. That's why they're here. Because he let it out of the bag. Now he commands Esther to go in and to plead with the king. And he also reveals to the, this eunuch that Esther uh, herself was a Jew by way of deduction uh, that uh, she is to go and plead for her people. Well, what's the whole context? The Jews are being uh, singled out for annihilation on a certain day. Perhaps he already knew, uh, you know, <laughs> evidently he's kind of close to Esther and he's close to Mordecai. Perhaps, uh, you know, he already knew it, but, but I don't know. We're not really told. Well, Mordecai applied lots of emotional pressure at this point. Uh, Note that word command, meaning he was really ordering Esther to do this. We saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 20, that Esther followed the order given to her by Mordecai not to reveal uh, her ethnic identity. And it says there, Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. She'd been taught obedience. And at that time, she was still respectful of Mordecai's leadership. But now she's the queen. Now she's the queen. And what would she do with such a command? Would she say, you know what? I'm the queen. I'm in a great position. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not going to put myself in jeopardy here. What's she going to do? Verse 9 and 10. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. Uh, Well, here was Esther's response back to Mordecai. Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death. All. (laughs) No exception. You come in before in the presence of the king without being invited, you die. Except, one exception, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet, there's a little concern. Yet, I myself have not been called to go in to the king these 30 days. So there's a little initial reluctance on the part of Esther to follow through on such a command. Because you see, it was a life and death matter. This was a major issue. She explained that everyone knew you could not just go uninvited into the king's presence. This is a big deal. And anyone who tried to do so would be put to death. And that was understandable, right? Because regularly they were assassination attempts on the king's life. You just couldn't have anybody coming in willy-nilly, you know, and like, well, who are you? What do you want? No, only by invitation. This would protect the king. Security and protecting the king was of paramount importance. Recall that in chapter 2, two of the king's eunuchs were were seeking and planning to lay hands on the king. And Mordecai exposed the plot. And those two were uh, immediately, promptly hanged on gallows. In fact, uh, as we study it through, Ahasuerus, about 10 years later, ended up being murdered in his own bed. So the threat was very real. So it was very important to guard who was allowed to come into the king's presence. Only those invited were allowed to come. The only exception to to the death penalty for those uninvited was if the king held out his golden scepter 
You might hope if you're going to go in that he's in a good mood that day. Uh, And this golden scepter is really a symbol of of the king's royal authority. And he is now in grace extending the the golden scepter so that you can come into his presence. I like to think of this. It's a beautiful illustration, totally by way of application here now, uh, of a picture of grace in Christ. God, as it were, is holding out the golden scepter. Uh, We now have access to God through Christ. Through Christ. Uh, The only thing we have to do is come. We do have to come. And even that's by grace, of course. But when Esther came, grace was extended. And she was allowed into the presence of the king. When we, by faith, come to God through Christ, we too are allowed in. The last invitation of the Bible is, is what? You know what it is, probably. Revelation twenty two seventeen. It's come, if you were to summarize it. It's come. Last invitation of the Bible. Come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working as the, as the gospel message goes out. And what's he saying? Come. And the, the Spirit is working in conjunction with the bride. Uh, Spirit works through the bride. The Holy Spirit works through the church. And what's the invitation? Come. Come. I love that combination. The Spirit and the bride say come. It's not just the Spirit. It's not just the bride. The Spirit and the bride are working together in harmony, in partnership, saying come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirsts come. This is the key emphasis. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So the golden scepter, so to speak, uh, that is grace, is extended. But we do have to come. That's the invitation. Come. But there was one other concern that Esther had. She had not been called to go in and see the king for 30 days. You know, that's quite a dry spell. Haven't seen the husband for 30 days. Haven't seen the king for 30 days. What do you make of that when you're the queen? 30 days? Has he grown kind of cold towards me? 30 days is quite a while. She wondered. She wondered, is there a problem? This was kind of risky. Could put her life in jeopardy if if the king was no longer favorable towards her. Courage was required. This involved high drama regarding the issues of life and death. And yet, it was not only Esther's life that was in view but that of all of her people. This was bigger than Esther. Bigger than just her interests. And so the pressure of this decision was upon her. And we can understand her giving pause and counting the cost. Mordecai had one last response, which would lead her to her final decision as well. And we'll see that next time. Verse 12 says, So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And as I say, next time we'll see Mordecai's response. And challenging question, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's really the penetrating question of the entire book. And really the great question, I think, before all of us who serve the Lord. Uh, We serve where God has placed us for such a time as this. And it seems to me, as we are emphasizing providence right now in our study, that this is a very fitting place for us to be in our study, as we have our last uh, service in this building, our last Sunday night service in this building, next Sunday night, where we will be studying this key verse on for such a time as this. And I submit to you, 
in the providence of God, we as a church are right where we are for such a time as this. What, a, what an amazing thing that we're going to study that next Sunday night, last service in this building as we transition over to the new place that God has put us in. Well, we'll pick it up there next time uh, in chapter 4. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close us in prayer tonight. <laughs>